I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my Big Bag of Onions. They got from Maine to California, broken hearts and fossil known. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dog radio How can so many be so lonely? Hands pressed cold against the phone The young stars Not far off the coast of Guam lies the deepest point on Earth's surface, the Mariana Trench. Its floor is 10,994 metres below sea level. If Mount Everest were flipped upside down into it, there would still be more than two kilometres of clear water between the mountain's base and the top of the ocean. Such isolation has led many to assume that it and similar seabed trenches will be among the few remaining pristine places on the planet. However, a study led by Alan Jameson of Newcastle University in England has shown that nothing could be further from the truth. As Dr. Jameson and his colleagues report this week in Nature, Ecology and Evolution, trenches are actually loaded with pollutants. Despite the cold, the darkness and the high pressure, ocean trenches are home to ecosystems similar in many ways to those found on other parts of the planet. In one important respect, though, they are different. This is the source of the energy that powers them.
Initially, I couldn't see. I couldn't see the light, and the idea of what seemed so many years in jail was was mind-boggling. But then, after a period of months, you you get. Or I got myself into a, such a state where it became clear that if I didn't handle it better, I wasn't going to get through the process at all. And getting to that point, in some way, actually helped. Um, it's exactly the point where I started to look. For positive cues, rather than indulging in all the negative stuff that was actually around me, which I had been doing. This is not right. That's not right. Um, the bed's not big enough. This is not big enough. And there was a point where it became clear if I kept on doing that, I wasn't going to survive for six and a half years. So it was at that point I started actively looking for some positive cues in here, in spite of all the negativity around. You think about okay. In a year, I'll have this. Then I'll be able to do this, or I'll do this course for six months, and that will take them. And you just find whatever it is, whatever scrap of positivity you can actually grab. You just grab that, and that takes you forward for six months, or it takes you forward for a year. And then there comes a time where you look up and you go, "Oh wow, I've got a year to go. I can do this. I can get to the end of this." Love is 
not for fools I took an airplane Named Desire I sat next to Marlon Brando too There's a method To this madness I got off there He got off too A little young A little crazy A little love to light your way lady A little dark side Forbidden pleasure my 20s and 30s, I knew I was supposed to get married, and I knew I was supposed to want to be married. Even now, I keep getting reminded. So in the United States, a month ago, these wedding planners made national news. They spent months fussing over the flowers and the music and the invitations and every imaginable detail. On the day of the wedding, they were so excited. Who were these wedding planners? They were a class of five-year-olds. <laughs> and the bride and groom were ducks. <laughs> By putting on a wedding, the five-year-olds became our storytellers, and they were telling the same stories we all grew up hearing. Get married and you will live happily ever after, and you will never be lonely again. As children, we hear those stories in fairy tales. As grown-ups, we keep hearing them in all the novels and movies and TV shows that build up to a wedding. The Supreme Court of the United States is telling those same stories. In the landmark ruling that legalized same-sex marriage, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote, quote, marriage responds to the universal fear that a lonely person might call out and find no one there.
You're listening to my big bag of onions. The final night of the summer. We get started out here at night three with a Buffalo Bill. Just a quick Buffalo Bill. Trey thanked everyone after playing Buffalo Bill. Not sure why exactly. 
and Moma Dance, Birds of a Feather, just pretty much straight ahead first set stuff like you would expect out of Moma and Birds of a Feather. Nothing too fancy, but alright, two nice songs get us going here, and then Sugar Shack, you know how I feel about Mike's songs by now, but Sugar Shack just is not one of them. It's not going to be high on my list of Mike's songs that I want to hear, but it just keeps coming back. They're not going to give up on it. Most events aren't planned. Page song sneaking in here again, just like it did in Madison Square Garden for the Baker's Dozen. Big highlight in the first set. Same with Back on the Train. That one, when they get grooving in that one, I just feel like Paige had to throw on a pair of them alien sunglasses. Just let everybody know this is kind of my show here a little bit. And it's got that feel to it. So that's coming through again. Back on the Train, of course, as always. Then we get Leaves in here. You got Tom Marshall at one point in this set, and it was the Leaves. Then here comes Wedge. All right, you know, Wedge, first set there. Nice little spot for it in 46 days. Just consistently become a player lately. You know, the last, I don't know, the last three or four tours, two or three years, whatever. Then Bathtub Gin, obviously, isn't going to let you down. Closing the set, night three at Dick. So look, we, got, we got some red ink here in the first set. A bad.
you're listening to my big bag of onions. assumption about highly sensitive people is that we are somehow weak and fragile creatures that picked a losing ticket in the genetic lottery of life. You can see this in action when you google the word sensitive. You will see images of toothache, irritated skin, <laughs> wilted dandelions and crying people. Sensitivity clearly has a PR problem. Today, I want to help change that. Maybe by now you're wondering what it is like to be highly sensitive. I invite you to imagine living with all of your senses on high alert. You also have a vivid inner world where all of your emotions are magnified. A sadness is a deep sorrow and the joy is pure ecstasy. You also care beyond reason and empathize without limits. Imagine being in permanent osmosis with everything around you. Highly sensitive people often hear things like, you are too sensitive. Stop taking everything to heart. Or my favorite, you should really toughen up. The fundamental message is clear. To be highly sensitive is to be highly flawed. I 
I hate to hurt you, I hate to see your pain, but I don't know how to stop, I don't know how to stop. Street after street, night after night, I walk on through the rain. I've got a couple of points here. One, of course, this multinational coaching situation. Well, in India, of course, there's a, a cry every once in a while, you know, why not coaches from within uh, the set of retired Indian players? And and here too, you know, Otis takes over from, as a West Indian, went to England, now South Africa. I think it's great to have this international mix, but are we also suggesting that there's nobody in South Africa who has enough knowledge about the game and coaching and the the situation in in South Africa to be able to deal with the national team. How does that work? Maybe they want a set of fresh eyes, though. That could be one of the things that we've spoken about in the past in terms of bringing in a set of, of fresh eyes, someone who comes into the setup with no uh, preconceived ideas about the players, despite what he's actually seen uh, out on the cricket field. So maybe there is. Um, maybe there is an advantage in some respects if you want to try to freshen things up and you don't want to have to go over issues where uh, players or other coaches who've come through uh, one nation system um, and you want to move away from that. That might be a positive from looking internationally as well. I still think the bottom line comes down to who's the best coach and what their nationality is shouldn't really play into it. It's a little subjective though, isn't it? Who's the best coach? But yeah, I mean, mm. there are those who've, who've done well, who've, who've been above controversy, I suppose, and brought in new things into the game, new thought, as you say. You're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. From in the shadow she calls And in the shadow she Everybody 
castles are burning in my heart And as I twist I will die And I ride to work every morning Wondering why Sit in the chair and be good now Oh and become all that they told you The white coats and I started when I was five. Uh, I used to go with my brother to see his practice, and last twenty thirty balls after his practice, I used to get to bat. So that for that twenty thirty balls, I used to just go to pick balls for him so that I'll get uh, the end part of it to for me to practice. But yeah, that is why I became a lefty, seeing my brother bat. And if you see my and my brother's batting, it is like a carbon copy. You won't really get any diff- see any difference, uh, just the uh, minor ones. So what age is your brother older? Ah, uh, yeah, he's five years older to me. So, uh, like we are uh, completely carbon copy because whatever I have uh, learned is in cricket, in batting is through his watching him bat. So I have never been taught this is a cover drive or this is an on drive. I've just learned watching him uh, bat in the nets, and that is why that is how I used to see that I uh, this, this shot is cover drive, this is on drive. So that came into me also. So which club is this at back home? Actually, uh, uh, I started when I was five in Mumbai, just for a two, year or two, and then we shifted to Sangli. Then uh, I, sh- then after that, I'd never played uh, leather ball cricket for two, three years. I just played uh, with boys uh, the gully cricket, like with the tennis ball. And uh, my mom and dad always wanted me to uh, be a sports person. So, and I loved cricket. So that is why, uh, you know, I. I wanted to be a cricket player only, and that is how I started. And when I was nine, I went for a selection under 15 just to see how the girls are and all. But luckily, I got selected for the from like from the start, and that is how it's all started.
someone else You tear the stars out of the sky Baby, you're too well Baby, you're too well spoken Baby, you're far too clean When I cry, do you feel anything? Baby, you're too well Baby, you're too You don't need me anymore You don't need me anymore They say storms are right for summertime Now baby, I'm on gone What you gonna do when you open your eyes It's a brand new day, baby No blue sky This has been a great experience for me living in Poland for the last three years. I've lived in Krakow. I love your city. I love the people. I love Poland. Uh, thank you. It's a great place. I go back to Seattle where I have my office in Seattle. People say, John, what are you doing in Poland? And I say, you've never been there, have you? <laughs> now, there's certain things that are different about Poland than, than in America, as you might go. We were at the end of one of, one of our three and a half day leadership development seminars and a participant came up at the end and I said um, how was this for you and he said Nizhle, Nizhle. and I turned to my colleague Derek it's my first week in Poland and I turned to my colleague Derek and I said he walked away I said Derek what, what does that mean he said not bad and I said not bad geez three and a half days and he says not Derek said the guy just told you that you changed his life
Listening to my big bag of onions. I wanted to talk about something that um, I don't think there's actually any real answer to, uh, but I just want to suggest some ways of thinking about Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria is somebody we sort of all think we're familiar with, but in fact, there are so many um, different views of her, and some of them uh, are um, really very wide of the mark. You, you may or may not be familiar with this image. I don't know whether anybody actually um, saw this programme on the television. This is the programme, um, Victoria, Daisy Goodwin's programme, which I'm pleased to say was on ITV and not on BBC. <laughs> um, because it is a, a film that was really composed of sort of invention. Even um, Gemma Coleman, who I'm sure is a wonderful actor, is a rather inappropriate person to play Queen Victoria in that she is far too pretty and far too thin and also actually doesn't ride terribly well with anybody who rides would. <laughs> so that is one image of Queen Victoria and I must say when I saw that programme I, I did get rather annoyed just because of the historical inaccuracies. I mean for example the idea that Queen Victoria should have proposed to her Prime Minister Melbourne was just outrageous. Um, there was, you know, this um, 18, 19-year-old girl to propose to a late middle-aged man was totally out of the question and there's no evidence whatsoever.
Neuroscience, like many other sciences, has a bottomless appetite for data. Flashy enterprises such as the Brain Initiative, announced by Barack Obama in 2013, or the Human Brain Project, approved by the European Union in the same year, aim to analyse the way that thousands or even millions of nerve cells interact in a real brain. The hope is that the torrents of data these schemes generate will contain some crucial nuggets that let neuroscientists get closer to understanding how exactly the brain does what it does. But a paper just published in PLOS Computational Biology questions whether more information is the same thing as more understanding. It does so by way of neuroscience's favourite analogy, comparing the brain to a computer. Like brains, computers process information by shuffling electricity around complicated circuits. Unlike the workings of brains, though, those of computers are understood on every level.
I scored it in a normal score book, as people consider a normal score book. I'd been shown how to do it by my teachers. Um, it was soon found that I was far better with a pencil than a bat, <laughs> so I ended up being the scorer for the school team, and that's how, what I was doing. Now, what do you make of clubs who are getting rid of traditional score books in favour of putting all their data into an app? I feel very sorry that the written record is going. I am not a Luddite. I use technology myself. However, I think if we look at technology, how it has moved over the last 30 years or more, I can remember the three and a half inch and five and a quarter inch floppy disks, which have now all gone. Um, And we can't read those anymore. And I have a feeling that with this technology, that we could lose a lot um, if we don't have it written down. Some people do a lot of research for their books, their written cricket books. Make a cup with your hands to take a drink In the same way that your father did And throw a stone upon the river's lid Watch the circles take you home Blow the smoke and watch it leave your lungs And high or not, think of what you've done Have you not considered life beneath the thumb Of flying solo in your home? Sometimes it's who, not what you do Just cause your father did Doesn't mean that you should do I don't want to lose you Don't go away from here Yes, that sinking feeling of being alone And it's the way it makes you screech And pulls the skin off your bones And I can't help but think So pick my mouth off the floor Don't you think about your actions Counterweight, dire reactions Zero soul, you're a loser, son Don't you go away from here Your mind's a minefield in a minor way just falling like some mindless stray We are friends, you see is what they say Don't you go away from here Yes, I sick and feeling of being alone And it's the way it makes you screech And pulls the skin off your bones And I can't help but think As I pick my mouth off the floor But you still know me in a year Alone 
And it's the way it makes you screech and pulls the skin off your bones And I can't help but think as I pick my mouth off the floor Will you still know me in a year? Yes, I'm sinking feeling of being alone And it's the way it makes you screech and pulls the skin off your bones And I can't help but think as I pick my mouth off the floor On the buses. What was on the buses all about? Surely you must remember something about it. I've seen the odd clip of some sort of conversation within a restroom of a bus station. Saw some clips of uh, a conductor walking down the bus, and that's about it, Bill. As I say, never really watched it. Well, essentially, didn't see a whole program. Essentially, I think it was uh, actors and actresses who were taking money for old rope, really. Um, It was considered to be, by the BBC, a show that was so awful it wouldn't succeed. And it was snapped up by a a young television company called London Weekend Television who desperately needed a bit of a hit. And the actors and actresses, if you watch it, they act as though they are on stage. They mug their way through the most dreadful jokes, um, if jokes really you could call them jokes. The characters are incredibly one-dimensional and the audience howl with laughter like they've been injected with some form of uh, evil drug that makes them laugh uncontrollably Skin bones turning 
I'm Bill Lawrence. Join me again soon for another big bag of onions.